All right. Good morning, everybody. How's it going? Okay. Bob's good. <laughs> Glad to hear that, Bob. I'm pretty good. Thanksgiving is fun. Happy Thankmas, as I like to call this, just now at least. Um, I don't know. I don't know. You know, you guys are the, the brave people who are either not, you know, away at family or sick this week. For all those who are away, watching online, so glad to see you guys. If you're sick at home, I know a couple people, people are. I'm sorry. I, I, one day we'll stop being sick, right? <laughs> one day the plague will stop moving through western Washington. It's going to be great. I really look forward to that. Um, but this is where we are right now, and um, yeah, it's exciting. I always have to tell people when we do, like, we do our Christmas decorations, when you're in the lobby, look up, because, like... We did some stuff that was up high in the lobby last year, and then like three, four weeks into the Christmas season, people were like, oh my gosh, I didn't know. It's like, it's been there the whole time, and I don't want you to feel embarrassed like that. So, so look up when you, when you head out into the lobby. Um, anyways, let's, uh, let's pray, and then we're just going to jump in this morning. Uh, yeah. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for this day. Um, Lord, we're thankful, and we want to just practice Thanksgiving, Lord. We want to uh, step into um, and take on kind of the, the attitude in the heart of, of thankfulness, Lord. And I don't, personally, Lord, I'm not very good at that. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd teach us what it is to be thankful. Thankful for you, thankful for uh, the things that you've done in our lives. Um, teach us to have faith in you, Lord, to walk uh, in the power of your spirit, Lord. Teach us to, to listen to you, to participate with you, Lord. We, we just want to see you work, Lord. Um, Lord we want to be changed. We want to be different people. Oh, we know you're the kind of God who does that. And so we just turn to you, Lord. And even as we open up your word now, you just pray you just, um, just speak to us and make clear what it is you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, if you have been following along, we are in the final. This is it. <laughs> Week nine of nine uh, right here in this series. Good news for everybody. And if you just said, maybe that's the reason for you to be thankful. And finally, finally, we're wrapping up this series. I know it's been a lot, um, and I, maybe it feels like overkill, but all I want to do today is sort of just put a bow on this series um, and answer the question, a question that we sort of started with, but I want to answer it once again. Why does all of this body stuff matter? Why does it matter um, that the gospel has something to do with how I live? Why does it matter? Um, why was Jesus and why were all, all the, the writers so into how we live in our bodies? Why is there such an interest, like we've talked about, in us glorifying God with our bodies and living in a certain way and living according to a pattern of obedience? Why does it matter? And we've, we've talked about you know, that, this from so many different angles, uh, thinking about it, but I really think it does matter, and I really want to emphasize this because I do think it's it's, it's, a, it's a gospel issue that we understand that the good news, what Jesus did on the cross, uh, is, is very relevant and ongoingly for our life in the body. It, this stuff matters because it's a gospel issue. And, and I, I, hate, I hate it when Christians say that because sometimes when Christians say, well, this is a gospel issue, it's like saying, well, you have to believe this thing the way I believe or else I'm going to be skeptical of you and that you know Jesus at all, right? That's not what I mean by this being a gospel issue. I'm not, I'm not you know, 
I'm not staring you down and saying, well, if you don't agree with me 100% on these nine weeks, come on, like who's, nobody, my wife doesn't even agree with me <laughs> on, all, on all of it, right? <laughs> um, but but like, like, I'm not saying that you don't know Jesus or you're not saved or you don't believe the right way or you don't haven't embraced the gospel or you don't, I'm not saying any of that stuff, but I'm saying that I do think that there is something in the call for us to glorify God in our bodies and, and, and to seek out, to live as disciples with, with, our, with our full selves, and that if we do that, we start to tap into the really great parts of the gospel. And if we don't, if we fail to move on to, to this point of obedience and living out a, a life where, where we're trying to actually glorify God with our bodies, I think we are leaving so much good on the table. So it's just a gospel issue because it's a gospel invitation to have the good news that Jesus Christ died for you play out in your life. We think, oh great, I'm, I'm saved, right? Salvation is awesome. It's this gift of God, a calling that we have. But there's, that is just the beginning of a life that you can begin to live with God and you live it in your body. So this is a gospel issue because I really think this is about what are we called to as people? And what is, from the moment you're saved and you understand what Jesus has done for you, what does the rest of your life look, at, look like? I think that's what's at stake when we're talking about this being a gospel issue. Um, if we are missing this, I think we're missing one of the coolest parts of the gospel. One of the things that, that the gospel writers go to, to great lengths for us to understand and that Paul is really leaning into, for example, in, in Romans 8. This is Romans 8, 10 through 13. Paul says this, Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit gives life because of righteousness. What a, what a claim. <laughs> right? Think about that for a second. Do we, do we, have you thought about that much? If, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through, uh, through his spirit who lives in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we're not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I think a lot of us think about, about the gospel, and I'm not sure if we think about this. I'm not sure if we think that the gospel implies this sort of thing, this, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's not the way we think about the gospel. It's not the way we talk about the gospel. But this is a pattern uh, the kind of phenomena that Paul was really leaning into. He's, he's understanding that there's something going on in the gospel, and it's looking like this. It's looking kind of like this three steps, at least, that I can identify here in Romans 8. The first is that Christ is going to be in you, and or sometimes in Paul's language, you will be in Christ. It's both those things, you in him, he in you. And that happens through faith. So we come to this understanding of what Jesus has done. We trust in him. He's in us, we're in him. There's this connection between us and Jesus, right? And, and, and the result of that is like step two, you have life in you because of the spirit. We love this one. We can all get behind this. I've been forgiven, now I have new life in Jesus, right? We're all into step two. But then step three is harder. <laughs> it's harder. And, and actually, I think we sometimes question the relevance of step three. What Paul says here is, by the spirit, put away sin. 
Like it, 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 the Spirit of God is working in you. You can, you can put away sin by the Spirit, put death to the deeds of the body, and you will live. Now, I'm, I'm not suggesting, I, I have to like clarify this. I am not suggesting that if you fail in certain places, if you fail and you fall into sin, I'm not suggesting that you're not saved. That's not, not the point. <laughs> not the point at all. Everybody's going to fail, right? But we have an invitation here from God that Paul is making super clear. What I'm saying is simply this. I think that we understand step one and two well enough, but most of us just haven't thought about step three. And so when we come and talk about body and uh, sex and all the things that we've been talking about for the last eight weeks, we fail to see the connection with the gospel. But Paul, I think, is saying, no, no, like the forgiveness and the life in you as a result of this spirit doing a work, it's totally tied up into this third part, a call to live in a transformed way and to put away sin. Paul doesn't see those as separable. We've separated them in our minds. So I'm not suggesting that if you fail at step three, you're not moving on to this maturity, that you're, that you, that you, that you're, that you're not saved or anything like that. But I do think this, that there is something you're missing, and it's a good thing. God is empowering and equipping you by the Spirit to live a transformed life and to put away sin. And that's to your benefit. I just say that it's to your benefit. That's not a drag. It's actually the, some of the greatest, meatiest parts of the invitation that we have in Christ is to be transformed. And, and Paul says it again. He, he says it, it, it earlier, and I think it's Romans what I have, 5 or 6. What's the next uh, slide? Romans 6. Um, he says, Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its desires. Do not offer your parts, uh, uh, the, any part of it, to sin as, as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all of your parts, uh, the parts of yourself to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law but under grace. Should we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? No, absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourself to someone as, an obe as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness? See, Paul understood the connection between step two and three. This, I've got the life of the Spirit working in me, and it's going to result in a, in a transformed sort of a direction in terms of the, the impact of sin in my life. And he says, sin is not to rule over you because you're not under the law, but under grace. See, we tend to think, because I have grace, because I have forgiveness, that means I, it doesn't matter if I sin or not. Like, like sin has no impact. But what, what Paul understood clearly is that Jesus has taken away sin, forgiven you of it entirely. It's in fact separated it from you so there's no guilt or shame in you anymore. But that's not so that you can just go off on your merry way and just be oblivious to what God has done, but to instead turn back into this awesome, powerful, beautiful thing that God has done so that you would instead turn yourself over to the righteousness that's flowing out of, of the blood of Jesus Christ and into your life. See, like, like we experience life biblically, the understand, understanding of sin is that we experience like life, like, like we're caught up in sin. Like everything that we do, it's a biblically way, way of understanding the person is before we know Jesus, like, like our experience of life is just of defeat. 
where we want to do well, but we can't. We're, we're, we're weak. We don't have the power to, to do good, to do justice, to do mercy, to be kind. Because we're just sinners. Like, like I am a sinner. Like, I am on my own just a miserable, unkind, selfish person. You are too. Right? That's, it's okay. It's great because what, what, what God has done is he's, through the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, pouring out grace into the world and countering the flow of sin, countering the power of sin through the power of grace. And it's not just like, oh, it takes away the, the badness, it takes away my guilt and my shame, but it lets me get caught up into this new righteousness poured out in Jesus Christ. And I think that we have to understand that that means something for how I live now. Most of the time, I think, I don't, I've, I've talked about this before, we tend to think about grace as, a, as something that will help us get away from God, away from punishment. But grace is meant to draw us closer to God, more, draw us more into his life, draw us more into what he's trying to do. John Barclay says this about the body. I think it's really good. I think it sums up what I'm trying to say here. What is demonstrated in the body of the believer is that overlap between the present reign of death and the new life of grace that springs from the resurrection of Christ. It is, the body that, uh, it is in the body that the believer is both visibly on the path to death and is required visibly to display the presence of the risen Christ. In the service of righteousness and holiness, Paul rightly speaks of the body with military language or weapons, since it is the site of resistance to sin. The body was once appropriated by sin, but is now reappropriated by Christ. The very place where sin once had the most visible sway, and where its grip still draws believers bodily selves towards death, is now the location where the newness of life breaks through into sight. It is this tug of war between death and life. Christian obedience in the body displays the fact that a miraculous counterforce is already at work, putting to death the deeds of the body by the superior power of the spirit. Do you understand what he's saying? I know that's a long quote. Just that emphasized point again. He says, the body was once appropriated by sin. That's that we have experienced our lives to be just caught up in sin. I have experienced my heart to be just like sinful. Like I have experienced myself to be more or less hopeless to do any better or to be changed. Sin impacted my inner life. But Christ did something. He reappropriated myself. He took me unto himself, put himself in me, and put me in him through his grace. And the very place where sin once had the most visible sway, and I can say that that's been true of me. When I, when I was stuck in sin, man, I was always just like feeling the weight of it, feeling my inability. The place where, where it's a sin once had the most visible sway and where its grip still draws believers' body, self, or death is now the location where the newness of life breaks through into sight. I, I don't know if this, like, is being impressed upon you enough, but I think we need to say, this is the, your body matters. What God has done and matters to your body because you are now, like, like, your life that you live in the body is the place where you can see God at work. That's the promise of Scripture. God's going to do something in you. He's going to change you. 
He's going to take you as someone who's like full of like intense desires and selfishness, and he intends to change you by the power of the Spirit. And I, I will confess, and I think it's true of most of us, I have a very low view of what God can do in me. I don't, I don't put much, I, I honestly, just like in my natural self, I think I'm just always going to be the way I am. I'm going to always have the struggles that I have. But, but God is doing something. I think he wants to transform us. I have a low view of what God can do. I think you probably have a low view of God can do. I have a low expectations of God and his ability to work in me. This is a confession. Not, I'm not, not, not saying proudly, right? Like This is generally where I, where I live in, and I need to get over that. I need to get over my low expectations of God, and I would say maybe you do too. Yeah. In Jesus' world, he, he died to save people. And what he did in that is he was intending to reverse the curse of sin and corruption that is just like entangling the whole world and myself along with it. And what he's doing in saving me and in redeeming creation is he's trying to restore order and beauty into the world. And I think we get that. We, I think we get that that's the outline of the story. Like, Jesus is God intervening in history, time, space to fix a broken world. I think we all can accept that, right? We, we see the world in all its brokenness, right? We see a world where there's homelessness and there's drug addiction and there's uh, all kinds of, of, of sin and difficulty and injustice and there's pain, and there's suffering, and there's depression, and there's all these things that we live with on a daily basis. And so we all can look at the world and just say, yeah, clearly God's trying to fix this some way. But I think that we tend to believe that God's intervention in the world is going to happen out there and not in here. It's really easy for me to believe, yeah, God's going to get involved in the world and straighten it out. And then it's also really easy for me to believe, but he's probably not going to do anything in my heart. And I think that's just a lack of faith. I think that's just a lack of faith. And I have that all the time, and I need to get over it because I really do think that God wants to do something in me, in my body. He wants me to glorify him with my whole self. See, God does have a plan to set this world right, to restore it. it be, that plan begins with Jesus Christ coming, dying, saving, being the fountain through which grace would flow into the world. And I tend to think, oh, and then so Jesus is going to come, and he's going to set right all the things around me, but we don't understand that what God is doing is he's, 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 he comes, he dies, he saves, he pours out grace, and then what he's doing as a, a secondary step to advance what he's doing in the world, he starts to gather people, you, me. He says, I see this world, it's broken, it's full of sin, and so Jesus comes as the first one, the righteous man, and what he's doing is then he's gathering people who will love what he loves, and then who will go and set this world right, partnering along with him. 
I love to skip that middle step where I'm involved. I love to think Jesus is going to come and then he's just going to go and bash heads together and fix the world. But I think the biblical story is Jesus has come and then he invites people to turn to him in faith and to be transformed from the inside out and to become people who are just in the world like him, transformed, loving the things that he loves. It feels almost wrong for me to involve myself in that story. Doesn't that feel kind of wrong to you to think you are involved in what God's trying to do in the world? We would love to think, oh no, God's trying to do something in the world, but I'm not, I'm not a part of it because I'm just a sinner. Look it, yes, yeah, you are. And he's died to save you and washed you in grace and he's transforming you by the power of the spirit. And now, because his work is going to be done and it's going to be done so thoroughly, he's sending you out to be a part of what he's doing in the world. And I have such a low view of what God can do in me. And that has the effect of just excusing me from any obedience, any transformation, any expectation that God's going to use me in any way. And I don't, I, don't, I don't know where that comes from. Actually, I, th- I think I do. I have a slide for it. <laughs> I, I guess I do. I guess I do know where that comes from. Right? <laughs> uh, I can't lie to you. You knew. Yeah, I, could, I couldn't have put that up and just didn't like, you'd be like, well, I, I think you might have had a thought. I did. I have a thought. It comes from a lack of faith. This is, okay, this is what I want. This is just two pages of notes, right? See, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> this never happened before, in case you're wondering. Um, I'm just going off of this. I hope this makes sense. I think that honestly, like, uh, faith is not just, um, faith is, is, is a kind of a two-part thing. I think it's this combination of having high expectations of God along with high personal commitment. Um, and I think, I think we have to understand that that's what it is. Like, think about the Israelites, okay? Like, they were, they were saved by God. They were brought out of... Oh, I'm not supposed to walk that far. They were brought out of Egypt. Um, and they had high expectations of God. Well, God's going to save them. They've been sitting around waiting for 400 years for God to do just that, right? To take, them out of, to take them out of Egypt and back into the promised land. They had high expectations of God. And I think we all get that faith is high, having expectations of God. But I don't think we get the second part necessarily, high personal commitment. Because imagine if this, imagine if, if the Israelites had sat around saying, God's going to save us, he's going he's to restore us, he's going to make us a people again, he's going to take us out of slavery. But then when God sent Moses and Moses said, all right, let's, let's, let's hot tail it out of here, they just said, oh, no, no, we're, we're, we're here waiting for God to save us. And Moses would have been like, yeah, so you just need to get off your butt <laughs> and start, start walking a little bit. Because, because the thing about faith is, yeah, like God is at work in the world and God is doing things, but he's involving you and it's going to involve a degree of personal commitment. It's going to involve, you know, when God begins to work, he involves you and that's necessary. The Israelites had to get up and go and walk to this dead end at the, at the Dead Sea where they thought they were going to die, right? And then God opened up a way for them to pass through into this new place. And there was all this personal commitment wavering along the way throughout Israel's story and throughout their going to the promised land. The personal commitment part is, is the thing that gets challenged over and over again. 
God continues to be faithful, but they begin to waver. And in, I, I, I think that the thing is that we can have conceptual expectations of God, but we have to understand that if we actually think that God is going to work in the world, it's going to involve a degree of personal commitment on our part. I haven't done one of these little box things in a little while. I think this will be helpful to some people, okay? Because, right, I, I think we need two of these elements, right? We need both high uh, expectations of God, but high personal commitment. When we have those, I think we have what's satisfying faith. We have satisfying faith. I don't think you will be satisfied in your faith, in your belief, unless you both have high expectations of God, but also have high personal commitment. I, I don't think you can have those. And I think when, when, we, when we're missing one of those, well, we're missing both those elements, we just have apathy. We don't, we don't think God's going to do much, and we're not at all committed to it. We're just kind of wandering through life. But I think a lot of us end up into these other elements, right, where we have Either high ex- high expectation of God, or, or or low personal commitment, or low or high personal commitment and low expectations of God. If we have high personal commitment, that is to say, we're just saying, I'm gonna I'm gonna be committed to to following God and obeying Him. But we have low expectations. You're just gonna lead to exhaustion. You're gonna lead to burnout. If you're feeling burnt out, I would just I ha. You know, I don't want you to feel guilty. Stop it. I just I don't know why we always turn uh, things that, I, I don't know. I, I always do this, and I know a lot of you guys do too. Not looking at anyone, not looking at anyone. Um, we can turn the invitations of God into condemnation, right? I really think that we have more than an exhaustion. Like, if you're a person who really wants to glorify God uh, with your life, like, that's awesome. Like, if you're a person who has that high personal commitment, saying, I'm just going to do it, Lord, then that personal commitment needs to be also met with high expectations of God, or else you're going to be exhausted. I think that's part of faith. Which is to say... That you got you like setting out to like live a transformed, renewed life. You have to understand that the real strength that you have, the real work that God wants to do, it's it's by the power of the Spirit. You don't need to white knuckle your way into the kingdom of God. That's gonna burn you out. Stop it. <laughs> Think about what he wants to do. Think about his invitations. His power will meet you right along with your personal commitment if we have satisfying faith. Likewise, I think that we can, um, we can be people who have high expectations of God, but low personal commitment, and that's going to lead to disappointment every single time. Because look, God isn't, it's not that he can't do all the work, he could, but the work he really wants to do involves raising up a people who are committed to him and who have been transformed to him. Leslie Newbegin says this, I really like this, the revelation of which we speak in the Christian tradition is more than the communication of information. That's, that doesn't just set some good expectations, right? It is the giving of an invitation. It is more than an unfolding of the purpose, which was otherwise hidden in the mind of God, but is now made known to us through God's revealing acts. It is also a call, an invitation. The response that is called for, therefore, is not only intellectual assent, but also active response. It is belief and obedience. The two are but uh, two sides of one response. 
Does that make sense? I think we have um, a way of thinking about what the, the world, and, and it's, it's honestly like some, sometimes pastors like me have, have done, I think, um, damage to, to you because we talk about faith. We talk about believing in God. And, and, and most of us just think, well, if I do some intellectual backflip, that's what faith is going to be. That's where belief is going to happen. But I think biblically, faith is both this, this, both this understanding of, of God's promises, but also an understanding that I'm involved in playing these things out. That yes, God is giving me all the power to overcome sin, but also I need to resist sin in the power of the Spirit. See, see we have a way of conceptualizing our relationship with God that really just takes us out of it. But I think that Jesus died to get us in the game, not take us out of the game. He died to take away sins so that we might have the power of the Spirit working in us. And that is a good thing and an awesome thing. And you might think of yourself like, like, like you're thinking that you're too high and mighty or, or involving yourself in something. But you need to be involved in this life that you have with Jesus. You need to participate in what he's doing because he's taking away sin and he's inviting you to be empowered by the Spirit. And you might feel stuck in all the ways that you've always felt like powerless, unable to do it. And it's right in that place where you feel powerless that he wants to come in and do something and change you and transform you. But if we never step out, if we never just take God at his word and just say, okay, Lord, you've, you've made these promises. I'm going to like lean into this and I'm going to commit to this and I'm going to walk into this. If we never actually do that step, then we're not going to find that he's going to show up because we're not willing to even take the first step. What God wants to do is participate along with us. He wants to create the sorts of people who, like Adam and Eve, could have a relationship with him. Christians love talking about relationship. Relationship involves give and take. It involves participation with the person in whom I am a relationship with. We need to be relating people, people who are actually leaning into what God has to say, people who are actually invited into a relationship with God, where he's showing up doing his part, but we're showing up doing our part. We love this verse, uh, John 8, uh, 31 to 32, right? We love verse 32, which is the second part. It says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, right? Like the Israelites, like, I just know God's going to set us free, and so knowing is, is enough, right? But as we all know, knowing is only half the battle. Who said that? He-Man? I think that's... Sorry, I don't remember. There's, there's some cartoon in my childhood. They said, knowing is half the battle. I don't remember who said it, but... But do you understand? Like, look at what Jesus says. Like, what does he say before he says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free? He says, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. That is, people who are doing the work of obeying and following after Jesus. If you continue in my word, you're my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I think that knowing is what I do when I sit alone and open a book and think, Right? Jesus says, knowing is what's going to happen as you continue in my word, as you set out and commit yourself to be a disciple, to practice discipleship, to be a person who intends to honor God, to be a person who intends to live the sort of life that Jesus teaches his disciples to live. You don't have the strength to do that in yourself. Absolutely not. But if you go and you intend to participate with God in what he's doing, 
the transforming of your inner life by the power of the Spirit, the strengthening of yourself by the power of the Spirit, then what's going to happen is you're going to have this knowledge of truth, and that truth will result in freedom. It's not something that I can do in the abstract. It's something I have to live into. I have to participate in this. I think this is part of the gospel, guys, and I think we really miss out if we think that if we think that we can follow Jesus without actually walking, living like disciples. I think it, it's not that I, I think you're not saved if you don't do that. I'm not, I'm not suggesting. Stop, stop thinking that. I'm not suggesting that at all. It's this, I just don't think we're going to experience the freedom that we're promised unless we're doing this participating with God, unless we're actually stepping up and understanding that he wants to do something in, in my heart. I really believe that the body is the venue, it's the place, it's the location, it is the place where we're going to be pointing to in our lives and reminding of us that, that God really is powerful and he is at work. Because once... I was just stuck in all these ways and all these sin and all this selfishness, but God did something by saving me and he put his spirit within me. And slowly, maybe slowly, but over time, he's starting to transform even my heart, even my desires. And I, I would have never thought that was possible because I had such low expectations of God. But I've come to him in faith, which is this commit, committing myself to him in his ways, but also expecting him to move. And as we do those things, then we experience the power of God. See, see if we don't do, if we don't understand the connection, right, that, that uh, obedience, at least intending to obey, is part of this relationship with Jesus, then I really think we're going to feel defeated in our faith because we're going to be like the Israelites sitting in, in Egypt and saying to Moses, shouldn't God be here already? Didn't he make all these great promises? And Moses is going to be like, yeah, let's go on your horse, right? Get moving. God's already opened up the way if you would just walk into it. But I think so many of us are just sitting because we don't actually expect God to do much, and we don't expect God to do much in us. And I don't say any of that to condemn you, okay? Like, if you have, if you have uh, low expectations of God, low expectations yourself, great, wonderful. The word, like, is, is here for us. Like, it's a great place to be. Stupid is great. I love being stupid. Then I can learn. Oh, sorry, honey. I'm not supposed to say stupid. <laughs> Two weeks in a row. Two weeks in a row. I want us to um, take some time now, and oh yeah, yeah there's a, we're right on time. Um, we're going to take some time in worship together, and I just want you to understand this invitation that you have. I want you to understand that it is a, a thing that we can be really thankful for that we're called to obedience, that we're really called to live out our faith in our bodies. We should be thankful for that. We should be thankful that the point of my life isn't just to wait till I die and go to heaven. We should be thankful that the life of a person of faith involves God working now and me participating in that now. It involves the Spirit empowering and transforming me now and me getting to uh, be a part of that, have a front row seat in my own body to watch him change me, transform me, change my heart. 
We need to understand that. That is something to be thankful for, something we need to lean into, something that we should be eagerly awaiting God to do. And I think so much of this is like, it's like we get disappointed and, and down in our faith because we aren't expecting God to show up at all. But he wants to. He really wants to do something in us. And he wants us to want him to. Uh, John Tyson, I was uh, at this thing a couple weeks ago. Uh, John Tyson, he's a pastor in New York, one of my faves. Um, and he was talking about revival. And he was like, you know, we, we try to like come up with formulas for how revivals work. And like looked at some revivals in recent history and said, you know, the truth is that there isn't really a formula for it. You can't really make it happen. But he did say this. So, but the one, the one thing that's common in all revivals is this. God shows up where he's wanted. God shows up where he's wanted. And if you, most of us, I think, are suppressing our longings for God because we have low expectations of him or low expectations of ourselves. I think we're really, we can be called to like raise those expectations and that the, kind, the God, God that we serve, the God who's done something is actually the God who shows up where he's wanted. And so, yeah, let's just, let's just take some time. Let's, let's worship. We're going to do one song, and we're going to, let's just ask God to just do this, like, in our lives and, and, and to, to put this desire for him in us. We're going to do a song, and then we're going to come back together, and we'll do communion and do one more song together. But I just want us to respond in thankfulness to what God's done and respond in expectation. So let's, um, let's just pray for a minute, and then we'll get into, into just worshiping the Lord. Uh, God... God, you're not a distant God, you're a present God. And we don't want to be distant people, we want to be present people. Lord, when, when present people, seeking people, wanting people, expectant people come in the presence of a God who acts, Lord, that's where you show up. Lord Jesus, would you remind us of who you are? Holy Spirit, would you be in our lives? Lord, would you teach us just how good it is to have this calling, this salvation working out in us? Lord, your spirit working out in us, Lord, would you, would you teach us that the invitation is good, that you're going to do a good work in us, Lord? Would you remind us of the truth of who you are? And Holy Spirit, would you just even be present here right now? Could we like celebrate at the Thanksgiving table alongside of you, Lord? Can we just be enjoying your presence, enjoying your company, Lord, and teach us, Lord, to do that day by day. Teach us to have our eyes fixed on you, Jesus, and what you've done, and planting our feet squarely in your promises, Lord. Build us up, Jesus. Build us up, Holy Spirit. Build us up, Lord. Let's stand and let's worship.